0: You're listening to Trek FM.
1: There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it?
2: (laughs) I was there more times than I can remember.
0: Tatooine is sparsely populated. If the trace was correct, I will find them quickly, Master.
1: Move against the Jedi first. You will then have no difficulty in taking the Queen to
0: Naboo to sign the treaty.
1: At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge.
0: You have been well trained, my young apprentice. They will be no match for you. Well, welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. Uh, we have gathered an amazing group of friends tonight. Uh, Ruby is pouring the drinks uh, just ridiculously liberally uh, because we have so much to talk about tonight. And I think everybody is aware that uh, Episode 7 is coming out this year. And, and because of that, it gave us the excuse to be able to sit around and talk some more Star Wars. And, and it would we thought it would be fun to go through each one of the films, and, and we will end uh, in December as we get towards episode seven there with episode six, and so we're going to start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue with the great film, The Sound of Music. Even though
3: George Lucas did. Well, I,
0: <laughs> George wants to argue with Robert Wise and uh, The Sound of Music. I uh, All all the more power to you, but I'm just not going to. So we can talk more about the sound of music in episode two, where they kind of do the whole the hills are alive. Uh, But uh, we're going to start with with episode one. And, um, you know, I don't think that there has ever been a movie that was really more hotly anticipated than episode one back in 1999. I mean, we were literally partying like it was 1999. And for Star Wars fans, it was a double party. Uh, I don't think any of us thought we'd ever get any more Star Wars movies, and then George got the bug. He he saw Jurassic Park and thought, "Hey, we can do those prequels now," and uh, decided to start making them and in 1999. They exploded on screen, and I you know I don't think we'll necessarily see anything like that until Episode Seven drops this year, and I have a feeling it's going to be ridiculously huge. So. I wanted to ask each one of you guys, I've got some amazing guys here with me tonight. I forgot to introduce them because I'm waxing poetic already about Star Wars. John, it's great to have you back. We're talking Star Wars, had to have you on.
1: I I think it's a rule by this point, Matt. Uh, I I don't think I'll let you get away from it, so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, no, it is a rule. It's written in the bylaws of the 602 Club now, Uh, and Ruby ratified it just the other night, Hmm. so we're good. Bruce, great to have you back. I I love that. uh, I know you're a huge Star Wars fan, so I'm glad you're
2: here for uh, episode one. I am so excited to talk about this. I just talk about this all the time with other people, and I love to argue about this movie. And I'm not going to reveal if I argue in favor of it or not at this point. Oh, I love the ultimate teaser.
1: Excellent.
0: (laughs) And back with us, um, John's nemesis. Mike Schindler.
3: Hey, how's it going? Yeah, um, I do, uh, I will say up front that I do love this movie, not as much as The Lost World Jurassic Park, um, but uh, for different reasons.
0: Well, I I think that everybody wouldn't have necessarily been surprised if maybe you had started the show by saying, I think this is George Lucas's best movie in the last 25 years. Yeah, So
3: Uh, that's not accurate, no. (laughs) <laughs> I had to think about whether, whatever other movies he'd made in that time period, but no, that is not an accurate statement. Sorry.
0: Guys, we all lived through the experience, the episode one experiences, as I was thinking about it, of what it was like when this movie opened um, and just kind of wondered where were you, you know, where were you in life and, and uh, what were your first impressions kind of walking out of that theater For the first time seeing new Star Wars in so many
1: years. I'll go first. Um, I was uh, still finding my way. I was dating a girl named Erin. Made her camp out for tickets. uh, And then made her Is that what ended it? No, no. Erin and I stayed together for a little while after that too. And then uh, when the movie came out, saw the 1201 AM show... um, and after getting over the annoyance of those three trailers that were attached at the beginning of it. Can you name them? Uh, Fight Club, Anna and the King, and Titan AE. Yep, that's accurate. Is that it? Oh, wow. Yes. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I remember everybody being very antsy about that. And really, th- really thinking about it. I walked out of it. I, I really loved it from the get-go. I did. Uh, but I distinctly remember because I've been sort of like racking my brain for something you know some memory I haven't recalled before about that first night and I remember very specifically there was a guy I had met in line camping out for tickets and I remember the weird moment where I walked out and he walked out at the same time and I saw him across the parking lot I was like dude wasn't that great and he looked at me and he said uh yeah you know it was okay and I remember that was the first inclination of what was to, you know, the great tempest that was to come.
0: What about you, Mike?
1: Yeah, I was I was all over it. I mean, like, the reason
3: why this is one of my favorite movies has very little to do with the quality or lack thereof. Um, it has a lot more to do with everything surrounding it. And it was kind of like a year-long celebration, you know, starting with that... Uh, that first trailer and and leading all the way up, you know, until the, the release of the film, I, I I didn't camp out because I was by myself, so I, I timed it so that I could to see like how long my bladder would last. But I did wait <laughs> in, the, in a line, which was going uh, for for two blocks uh, to see the movie at McClure Court, and I saw it actually before that as well um, at the midnight screening at Yorktown. And it was amazing, an amazing experience, um, which I will always cherish and have recounted on numerous occasions, much to everyone's boredom.
2: <laughs> what about you, Bruce? Well, I have very, very fond memories of this movie. And the reason for that is that I got married two weeks before the premiere. Mm-hmm. And oh, nice. my wife, and this just shows you how awesome she is, as a wedding gift, she gave me the novelization. Mm-hmm. And wow. on our honeymoon, as we're flying to Las Vegas, we read the book together on the plane. Before- and I was like... Before the movies, yeah. So I did. Well, That's a
0: match made in heaven right now.
2: It is, yeah. But now I will say we didn't finish it because I didn't want to know how it ended. But I did know the first half of the film based on the novelization when we first read it together on the plane. And so that was devotion. And she got me a hat, too. So. And then, of course, two weeks later, we went to see it. But no line.
0: <laughs> well, for me, there was no line. I was serving my first year at a, at a summer camp. And I was at lifeguard training because I was also going to be a lifeguard there at the camp as well as a counselor. And our lifeguard training was a week early compared to everybody else who had to be there. So I was going to miss the opening of episode one and I was going to have to see it on the weekend. Which was breaking my heart that everybody was seeing this movie before I was. And so... It was great, though. All all my friends that were, I had a bunch of friends who were actually serving at, at camp that summer, too, and a few of them were going to be lifeguards. So we all went to see the movie together. Um, you know, we were able to get tickets, which was great because we were in a smaller town in, in, in Texas. So it wasn't quite like trying to get in it, you know, in Dallas where there's lines around the corner. And it was fantastic. I, I, the theater was hump, I mean, it was just popping. It people are playing with lightsabers all over the place and you know it was just fantastic and of course that would just carry on into to episodes 2 and 3 and we came out of the theater i remember my friend lindsay turning to me because it was i she knew how much i loved star wars and she's like did did you like it huh. and i was like yeah i liked it um and uh i i that was just i mean it was fantastic in fact Side story, we had a couple of guys who were uh, senior counselors at the camp. Every weekend, all summer, every weekend, went and saw episode one together. So by the end of the summer, they've seen it like 17 times and can quote the entire thing from memory from start to finish. It was pretty amazing. Uh, So, yeah, this – I mean, this movie, I think – it helped that they had brought out the special editions you know just a few years ago and I had gotten to see Star Wars because I was that generation who was you know if you've only seen Star Wars this way and you know I'd never seen it on the big screen and and then getting to see it there really helps and it prepared me to be able to enjoy where George just you know he wants everybody to see it on the big screen that's he was creating these visual tone poems and it looks better on the big screen. It's a better experience. So, I yeah, that one just sticks in my brain. So, you know,
3: just a little aside here. You, you, you uh, quoted the the trailer for the Star Wars Special Edition. Did you know that trailer is narrated by uh, Percy Rodriguez, who plays Daystrom in the Ultimate Computer? Tying it all into in no Star Trek. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right, yeah.
0: I didn't wow. know that. Yeah, he's awesome. Cool, well, that, man. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Is one of my favorite trailers of all time because it, you know, it did it hit you right where you were. At least for me, is the kid who had only grown up seeing Star Wars on, you know, the the tube, and and that's not where it was meant to be seen. And so I remember just seeing those for the first time and just my mind being blown. Like this is what Star Wars is, you know.
2: See, I thought a little differently than that. I didn't feel like this is what Star Wars is. It felt like this is Star Wars, but different. It wasn't quite, it took me, let me just back up. When I saw, left the theater, both my wife and I looked, my new wife, you know, newlywed, we left the theater, we looked at each other, and she's like, did you like it? And I said, yeah, I think so. And I said, did you? And she's like, yeah, I think so. And I really just pondered on, I just kept thinking about it, I was like, it it's, it's different. It was different than the original trilogy. But then I went to see a second time, now knowing what to expect. And when we left the theater, we looked at each other and we were like, we really love this movie. It took that yeah. second time for me to really hit because I I accepted for what it was, not what I was anticipating.
1: I, I think that's a really important point, too, because I I think that um, uh, while well, I did walk out loving it, I didn't really fully digest what I watched until that second one because that that adrenaline, that anticipation was there and so intense for the first showing that it was hard even to pay attention because there were so many things you were looking for where it was like, okay, wait a minute, was that important? Is this giving some how does this tie into things? And like the, the second time you were able to just sort of relax and watch a movie and just see it happen uh, as opposed to trying to figure out what plugged in where because I you know for episode what you mentioned you read the uh, you know at least half of the novelization. I did everything in my power to be completely spoiler free. A lot easier back then uh, for episode one, and um, although I did go to the the Star Wars Celebration in Denver that year, uh, and so you know got to see you know clips and interviews and stuff like that with people. Um, it, it was so I, I would like to know what was it like. When having read the first half of the novelization, was there some sort of anticipation about you know like it not matching in your head because of those extra chapters that he had in there? Do you feel that reading that part of the novelization was edifying? like did it help digest the the film on the first couple of showings?
2: I would say not in this case, Uh, and I can talk about other films at another time. But uh, in this case, no, because when I read the novel, in my mind, I'm thinking A New Hope. It felt that way to me because there was these additional scenes with Anakin that happened near the beginning. Also similar to uh, the novelization of A New Hope where there's additional scenes with Luke, but it felt more Tatooine based. It didn't feel as as dense as this movie was, it felt like it had more character development than what I was seeing in the film. So when I actually went to see the movie, it was, I was like, where are these scenes? Where's Tatooine? Why are we moving so quick and fast through all these? So it really just kind of threw me off. Fair enough.
0: Well, that's something that I think you guys are really hitting on. One is the expectation that we all had coming in. And two, we're going backwards, you know, and George is telling us the backstory of everything that we got in in the original trilogy, and therefore it it felt a lot different because we're in a different time period, you know, like the 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 galaxy is completely different, you know, the original trilogy is is definitely about a small group of rebels fighting, you know, this evil empire. And everything feels dirty and dingy, you know. Nothing's been taken care of. It feels like for years and years and years. And and for kids who grew up, you know, with um, kind of seeing pictures of, of the Berlin Wall and all of that kind of stuff, we can kind of get that feel of of that that empire where things just. Nothing looks good anymore, you know, um, and whereas this was a this is a really different type of story um, and a really different setting and the galaxy itself really does kind of feel different. And, and I think that kind of surprised a lot of people because in some ways we all had expectations that it was going to feel like the Star Wars that we knew before. And it because of the, the major shift change, the tone change, the feel change to talk about the prequel world, um, I think that just that caught a lot of people off guard. So when they first saw it they did have that and oh well I I don't know. That that's weird. Is that Star Wars? You know? So
3: I I I see what you're saying, and certainly I know that that's you know uh, George Lucas's justification and everything. But I, I think that it's undeniable that there is an aesthetic shift in the prequels, which is not necessarily just story based. You know, it's it's yes, it, it is a a newer universe, which is more um, let's say. Uh, economically Shiny. and, and uh, socially viable than what we're seeing in, um, in in the original trilogy. But there's also that that technical aspect to it. And the fact that George Lucas had this brand new toy box and he was playing in it hardcore. And maybe he made a few missteps in the making of the movie, which really made people disconnect in a way that was very very different from the original trilogy because the original trilogy used sort of the opposite toy box to make people connect in a way that they never really had in a movie like that before so i definitely think that there is a a creative misstep in this movie and I think you see it in the performances. I think you see it in a lot of stuff. And I noticed it from scene one, and it had nothing to do with how shiny things were.
1: I, I, I see. I see your point on that, Mike. Uh, but what I would say is the the missteps. I feel are not there. I don't think that there's any sort of design based misstep. I don't think that there's any sort of like cover there. I think that if there was a misstep. It is, and there was a misstep. I mean, like, as much as I love Phantom Menace, I'm willing to acknowledge its, you know, its warts and all. It's the editing. Uh, And I think that I, no, I think that I honestly think that the disconnect with the, the biggest disconnect with the audience is what Star Wars was when we were growing up was fast cuts, lots of explosive energy. And this film is decidedly slower. Now, it is decidedly slower on purpose, but. For instance, comic timing uh, in film is very you know, I- important to, to cut things at the right point. And I think that there, there are definite missteps there. I think that there are certain scenes that are, uh, for instance, the journey from Odo Gunga to Naboo is twice as long as it needs to be. Because he does get detoured by the toys and he's like, oh, more sea monsters, more sea monsters. And it's like, that should have been half as long. It should have been one sea monster scares you, you get away, and you're at Naboo. Done.
3: Yeah. And I mean, but I don't think that, I mean, while it, it may be at, at the most base level, you know, the editing, I don't think that you can put it on the editors. I think that it, it goes all the way back to the script, you know. And I mean, like what you're talking about, like the dialogue not being in snap, as snappy and everything like that, I think that goes. Uh, I and and uh, every all of that stuff the the energy level that you get out of the the performances and everything I think all of that has to do with George Lucas you know not doing what he realized he should be doing with the original movies is you know handing these certain aspects off to other people who are more skilled at at, at those things than he is you know you, now, you get Lawrence Kasdan to write a movie you get Irvin Kershner to direct it. You get
1: Paul Hurst okay, to cut stop. it, uh, and just stop it. What am, am I wrong here? No, no, no. Yes, you you <laughs> are because this is Phantom Menace is a return. What Phantom Menace is uh, is if you if you go through Phantom Menace is basically THX eleven thirty eight. He's going back. He's revisiting that world. Okay, that's because fair he always he always said there was a frustration with him and there is a definite decision and it is very much on purpose to make this a more sterile world. This is a world that needs to be torn down. That's become this bureaucratic morass of slow and, and uh, you know, it's ripe for, you know, for downfall. And so I, I'm not, I'm not willing to, you know, Chuck the script from that, that standpoint. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel and, you may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's, you know, it's great, but it's on purpose. He he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say conceptually
3: I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed.
0: Well, and I think that one of the big things in this this whole prequel era is that again, w- w- the conception and the setting for this is com- is different. This isn't um you know like a a wild wild west or or type of of feel this is that um that very courtly nature of the Camelot story where we've got knights we've got princesses and queens and we've got political parties and backstabbing and bureaucracy and all this thing and and like you said John it's that thing that has become corrupt it needs to be torn down um well geez we're getting to it now but um Coruscant. It's the the best representation of exactly the the problem. It's it's a it's a beautiful glittering city built on a decaying underbelly, and and that's exactly what the whole prequel era is about. Is that Palpatine takes advantage of that 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 everything is at the point where it can be torn down. Everything is falling apart um, from the from the inside out. You know, even even the Jedi. Um, so I, I think, to me, that's what works about Phantom Menace, and, and and people kind of talk about, you know, dialogue or whatever, but it fits in a more courtly, stately world that they're in, uh, as, as Obi-Wan said, for a more civilized age. You know, the people are a little bit more formal, uh, you know, when you're on the run from the Empire, like they are in um, the original trilogy most of the time. A lot of that refinement gets beat out of you you know and so I, I i think it really does fit and i think it makes sense for what they do here in the prequel trilogy and i think as the trilogy as this trilogy moves forward you kind of slowly beat that out of it, out of it you know like um you get more of that buddy-buddy stuff in the second movie and even in the third movie for part of it. you know, um, It starts to fall away and it starts to feel a little bit closer as we get closer to the original trilogy and, and everything's falling apart. So I think it was important to set this movie up in this way. It was just... It's a jarring different feel because we are being dropped into the Star Wars universe but in a very different way than we had experienced it before because we'd only experienced like you know the the microcosm not the macrocosm and the, the, the prequels is all about the entire galaxy as much as it is you know Anakin's story
1: I, I, Mike, I'm let. I'm I'm gonna let. I'm gonna let you rebut before I, I you know, give him the virtual pat on the back there. But please, uh,
3: all, all I was going to say was, you know, I think that it's interesting the analogy that you made. A you know, like a Coruscant sort of being um, a representation of this universe, and it being like this this beautiful, shiny, you know, um, uh, uh, wonderful city, which is built on a decaying foundation. And when you said that, I and I'm saying this lovingly, okay, I do love the movie, Um, I do see that sort of being analogous to what the movie itself is. You've got the best special effects and the best technicians in the world making the most technically advanced movie of all time, and yet the foundation, the, the script and the performances and the direction are weak. And I think that that's sort of where the disconnect comes from, because we have to admit that there is a disconnect. I mean, whether or not we love this movie, we have sure. to admit that people ha- have not embraced this as as well as, as the other movies. And what's the reason for that? You know, I mean, that's interesting to me. I, mean, I don't mean to be I, like a downer here, you know, and I do love the movie, but I, I just that's how I see it, you know.
1: I mean, realistically, I mean, this movie does have problems, as good as it is. But see, this is, I I think there there are two things here, where one, he enters into this movie knowing he's going to make two more. Star Wars is much more exciting and, and by the seat of his pants, because he's just making a movie, and he thinks this is it, and maybe I'll make, you know, the ones afterward, but... You know he's just making the movie to make the movie, whereas this is to make he's entering into a promise to make all three, both to himself and to the audience. And uh, I think additionally, you have um, that it turns into a a six six books, and nobody's favorite part of Lord of the Rings. Nobody's favorite part of Lord of the Rings is the is the first half of Fellowship of the Ring. Nobody's in love with Tom Bombadil until. They read the last book of Return of the King and they go, "Got it, I see, yes, now." And I, you know, I, I, I've rolled that one out before, but this is Book One of Fellowship of the Ring, and it's it's the one where you're like, "I'm not quite," you know. It, it would be, I think, it's very fair of somebody to say this better take off in Book Two. I, you know, I, I want to see something take off, and it does. And so this is this is all, you know, just pure setup and. I, I, I wha, again. While I acknowledge that it's not perfect, um, I I don't think that it deserves to be maligned. I don't think that there are those same sort of like core problems um, that that you're pointing at. Yeah, I mean, like I,
3: I I know I'm coming across sounding like I don't like this movie or whatever. I do like the movie. I'm just I I just can also acknowledge that there are flaws present. You know, what right?
1: I. Mean? I yeah, absolutely. And I, but again, I think it goes back to the editing.
3: I really do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, Like I said, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, The funny thing
2: is I actually agree with both of you on this. I mean, you know, before I went to see uh, this movie, my, my fear, and this is going to sound crazy, but my fear was this, this movie and the prequel trilogy would end up being better than the original trilogy. And I didn't want it to be where you would watch episodes one through six in order, and four, five, and six just don't hold up as well as the prequel. I wanted it to start at a low note and work its way up and accelerate up into the final chapters, which is the original trilogy, and those be the core characters that people know and love. And this is the build up to that and setting up the story. and That's the problem with the movie is the fact that I agree with what George Lucas did with the movie, but that's not what people were wanting. That's not what they were expecting. They wanted a fully contained, bang them up, big Star Wars movie. I hear people complain about the Trade Federation, how the movie starts with the taxation. Well, you don't want it to start off as big as the Empire because you want those next movies to be the ones that stand above and beyond that, that the... Everything's heightened later on. That's the way it needed to go. But unfortunately, to start low just doesn't cut it for most audiences.
0: Well, and, and this is one of the things that, that the movie is doing is that it is telling a a story within the Skywalker story, which is George is talking about the death of democracy, talking about a death of a republic and, and how does that happen? And that's the larger story in here. Which, you know, as as Star Wars does, um, the original films kind of um, referenced George growing up and when he made them in the 70s and everything that was going on politically then. It, it's a story for that. And, and in the same way, the prequel trilogy uh, kind of referenced how he might have been feeling it at that time and, and kind of seeing some things that he was wanting to talk about. And that leaks into the movie. But it's also bigger than that because... And George isn't just referencing current events. He's also referencing historical events. And, and really what we're getting here is is the fall of Rome, you know, but it's in a galaxy far, far away. And how does that happen? How do you go from it being a, a republic to a dictatorship? And and so it's a kind of, as George likes to do, it's a timeless mythology all kind of boiled down in, into the the meat and bones, the you know, the potatoes of everything. And I think it really... It works and the more I watch The Phantom Menace the more I appreciate I think the the storyline that George is telling for the prequels because it's an even bigger and more important story today I think thematically uh, than the original trilogy is in a lot of ways just because we're at that point where we have a society that we have to be very careful of so uh, to me I uh, I like that and I and that's what I love about my films and so um and I like that I just like I feel like Deep Space Nine does with Star Trek, it's more and more relevant the more times I watch it because it's so mythic and it's storytelling. It's got some great background to it. I think prequel trilogy does that well and it starts off with these things that people are so pissed off about, which Trade Federation will get into some of those themes, but really important, amazing if you ask me great writing
1: well so. I'll uh, you know I will say I will concede that it's entirely possible because I know that people weren't thrilled with all of the sort of debate on the Senate floor type of stuff but I can tell you that um you know for me you know living in the DC metro area my whole life like that was I thought that was awesome I loved seeing the the senatorial scenes and like the machinations behind it's like It's like uh, House of Cards in a galaxy far, far away. Only, (laughs) arguably in Phantom Menace, fewer people die. So, you know.
0: That is actually true. (laughs) I think that that might be the case. That's crazy. Well, one of the things that was so much fun about the prequel trilogy is that we were going to get introduced to new and old. You know, um, we were gonna get new characters that we'd never seen before or, or really heard of before, which was great. And we were gonna get old characters as well, and and get those backstories for them. I mean, geez, Obi Wan Kenobi and and Yoda and that kind of stuff. We were gonna get that background, and so just kind of wanted to talk about uh, that with you guys. Um, you know, which ones did you really like? Which ones stood out to you? Um, you know, which didn't work for you? And I, because this movie, again, it. There's a lot that's given to us that's new, and there's some great stuff that we're like, all right, I'm getting that character again, and I'm getting to see their backstory.
3: Uh, Well, I I think that uh, for me, the the two characters which really stood out as far as the new characters are concerned, three characters which stood out were um, uh, Qui-Gon, who I really see like this. I mean, in terms of perspective and everything, this really is kind of his movie, which is, is interesting to me. And uh, Padme, I think, is a really cool character. And then Darth Maul, you know, for just, you know, the, the badass reasons, is, is pretty awesome to watch. Um, as Is the second part the ones that we didn't like or the ones that we liked seeing? Again, I'm sorry, I forget. <laughs>
0: just go All for right.
3: it, Mike. As far as the ones that didn't work for me, it would be um, uh, uh, Jar Jar. Jar Jar. Um, I I mean, he just really took me out of the movie. Uh, I know that it's for kids, but I'd like to think that I'm pretty sure that even if I were a kid, even, you know, I watched the original trilogy when I was three I'm pretty sure that even as a three-year-old, I would have been like, "What the, um, what the hell is going on?" I,
0: you say that, but I was listening to Educating Geeks the other day, and Alice asked her son when they were doing the uh, original Star Wars movie because he was in the room. You know, who's your favorite character in Star Wars? Who you know in the prequels? And he said Jar Jar, and he, I mean, so you ask kids, and they like Jar Jar. So I, I, I
3: believe that, but I also know, I also vividly remember me as a kid sitting watching tom and jerry cartoons with my friends and them laughing hysterically and me saying you guys are insane this is not funny there's nothing funny about a dude running into a wall you know that's not funny i'm sorry wait 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 wait
1: <laughs> wait 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 did you just okay at the ri- no okay i can't even go. you just badmouth tom and jerry Look, it... <laughs> uh, no okay no 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 moving pa- just move past just move past all right okay we'll just move on just let we'll it go on. man we'll just move on um,
3: so, yeah, I mean, that, was, that, that he was uh, the one that really stood out to me as far as the, the new characters are concerned. I mean, I remember sort of like this extreme disappointment with Sam Jackson, because after seeing him in stuff like Pulp Fiction and everything, you're like, oh, my God, this guy is going to be the, the, the baddest Jedi of them all. And then he, you know, sits in the chair and says, do you believe it's this? boy? And it's like, really? Come on. But then, you know, I mean, there was the promise of more to come. So, you know, there was disappointment there, but I I still knew that there was potential. But the ones that stood out for me as being really cool were Qui-Gon, Padme, and uh, uh, Darth Maul.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I'm the same. I'm the same, except I would add Watto to the mix. I always like the Watto character.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm totally... I I, I was going to say Watto. Uh, Qui-Gon is, I think... Terribly underappreciated by the fan base. I think he's a terrific character, and I really liked what Neeson did with him. Jar Jar, I don't have the same problem that everybody else does. He's never going to be my favorite Star Wars character. But I think that, uh, again, and I think this speaks to an editor, should a, a different editor, I think, would have stood up to Lucas um, and said, don't have him step in poop. And you're it's not it's unfortunate that jar jar possesses the the scene with the aop farting during what is arguably one of the most incredible majestic pieces of music williams had done in decades the you know as they're lining up for the pod race and the flags are marching out and they you know they had the fart joke in it it was like ah you just that was not the right spot for the fart joke that was not it and um the the scene where he drops the spanner into the the pod racer engine when they're they're getting ready to test it is another example of how important editing is because that joke just dragged on. It was like, oh, okay, cut. Okay, stut, cut. Done. Be done with
3: it. In regards to the editing thing, I, I don't know. Have you guys watched? I'm sure you have the beginning the documentary yes. mm-hmm. that's yeah. on the the DVD which is awesome by the way um, it is it's like one of the best documentaries ever on the making of a movie if if you ask me and there's one scene where he goes in to and they show like Ben Burt editing and then Lucas is giving him notes and like Lucas leaves and they stay with Ben Burt <laughs> and there's this look on Bert's face where he just looks defeated he's like that's how we're doing it these days and he's just like this guy is freaking insane you know it's it's very strange but there wasn't unlike the original trilogy there wasn't anyone around to say no george that's a bad idea (laughs) yeah so i think that that's kind of you know problematic in terms of the the editing like you're saying you know finding an editor who would stand up to him i don't know if there was that he didn't have his wife on on board who wasn't scared of him you know
1: yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, that's true i think
0: um one of the things that that I have come to see about Jar Jar though is that you know I mentioned the kind of the the Camelot feel of of the world building here, and he's the court jester, you know, and that's the role
1: that he plays in the entire story. Well, sure, but but he's he's I I don't I do not hate Jar Jar. I I've actually I've defended him for for many years, and I will continue to defend him. But but to speak to the court jester point. I think that with those three moments, the the stepping in poop, the fart, and then cutting that, that wrench joke down, Jar Jar plays better as a character, because oh, you're not associating those three somewhat painful comic moments with this one character. He possesses all three of those moments, and I think that that definitely carries over to people's impression of the character.
0: And at that point, he would have been, I think, much more in, in the vein of who really he resembles, which is C-3PO, which, you know, when you watch the original trilogy, mm-hmm. C-3PO is, is quite an obnoxious character. Um, and the, then it was a little bit tough, I think, in some places, because the the prequel trilogy had Jar Jar and C-3PO. So it was like, it was double the the play and and the kind, type of character that they are no, in I, a lot of places. I, I
2: thought the same thing, because in uh, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, years ago I hadn't seen it in a while and I watched it and C-3PO actually was driving me crazy in that movie he was—he uh, never annoyed me before until that one time I was watching that movie But and Jar Jar doesn't annoy me in this movie as a matter of fact when I watched it the uh, last week with my daughters who are 13 and 10 I asked them who's your favorite characters and they both told me they liked uh, Anakin because he's a kid and he's cute and then they said Jar Jar and I said why Jar Jar and they said well because he's the only thing that's funny in the movie the other characters aren't very funny, so it works on kids. I mean, and, and, yeah. and Jar Jar didn't bother me, and I, poodoo is a great word.
1: No, uh, <laughs> no, Pudu is from Return of the Jedi. The, that word's fine. That word's fine. It's it's the it's the stepping as they're walking in, and you're you're getting that beautiful establishing shot of Mos Espa, and then like even if he'd stepped in in the poop, and they didn't have the big <laughs> like sound effect on it. Like, if you had just seen him, like, as the camera's moving, step in it and, like, shake his foot, that's that's funnier than the, the big, like, you know, almost like a, a whoopee cushion sound that goes along with it. Like, you know, that's all I'm saying. Like, you know, I, I, I got no problem with him, but, the, you know, it's just those moments. So, so to paraphrase
3: uh, Harrison Ford, you can, you can say that puto, but you can't step in it. Yeah, okay. exactly. Perfect. There you go. Perfectly, yes.
0: Well, what I I liked in the movie and the characters, I like I loved Qui Gon because it was such an interesting thing to see. And even I think the first, you know, just seeing Episode One, you could tell there's there's something different about this guy. You know, it, there's something different about this Jedi. Um, you know, obviously Obi Wan tells him, you know, if you just uh, be obedient, you'd be on the council. You know, there's something about him that that's going to be special. And what I love is that really you don't pay off that until the clone wars and he's teaching Yoda how to, you know, um become one with the force after you die. And and like that this character has such a resonance. He goes all the way through to that. Um and it was really cool because I mean, he's the character who's on the outside that can see that what's happening and nobody else will listen. You know, um, he's the one character who's kind of, I think, seeing the problems that the Jedi are having. He's the problem, the problems that are happening with the Republic itself. And, and, no, you know, he's just one lone voice in the wilderness, a lot like John the Baptist's and nobody's listening. And uh, I think it makes for an, a, a fascinating character.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, one of my favorite scenes in the entire film is uh, when Anakin's in being tested. And uh, and Obi-Wan says, do not go against against the Councilmaster, not again. Like, that's just, that's enough of a hint of the fact that Qui-Gon is sort of, like, my, my friends and I read into that, uh, the, you know, this sense that Qui-Gon was this, you know, he brings Anakin in front of him and he's like, I've encountered a virgin in the Force and it's centered around this boy. And it's, he, not to take anything away from the character, but I think that the it very much comes across that the council is kind of like, ah, oh, geez, Qui-Gon. Okay. He found, he found somebody special again. All right. What, what, what what's the deal this time? Like there's very much. A, and I think that, that that, balcony scene conveys that Qui-Gon is the one who's always finding the cause. And like, I, I would love to see more backstory on him because I always picture him as the one who cried wolf a lot. And so when he did sound the alarm, their reaction was not to say, oh, my gosh, because they had heard him make certain proclamations so many times that not that he'd found the chosen one or anything, but that, you know, something big was happening or something was coming. And it never quite panned out that the Jedi sort of brushed him aside as kind of like, eh, OK, again, here we go.
0: See, and what I was kind of getting from Qui-Gon is that he's the one who's the most in tune with the force of any of the Jedi at this moment. Like he's the one, because obviously, uh, you know, when he dies, he's able to do something that nobody else has done before. And he has apparently been studying and searching and doing all of these things. I mean, he has to have been to been able to carry himself into the force the way he did, and then be able to instruct others later on. And, and so it, it, what I think is amazing is, is that he's, I never took it as like hey, he's the one who who cried wolf. I always took it as he's just the one who was so in tune with the force that he was the one figuring things out, and it, mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to listen because he wasn't he wasn't the guy who played nice with the establishment. He's the rebel Jedi, you know. He's the one who just like he cares more about what the will of the force. He doesn't care about all of this bureaucracy. It, you know, like, he's the one who's realizing we shouldn't even be a bureaucracy. You know, we're meant to be following the Force, not the Republic, you know? So, I think all of those things have been happening in the background for him, and, and it's interesting to know that, you know, we'll learn later is that Dooku was his master, and Yoda was Dooku's master, and you can kind of see the resemblance from masters that, you know... uh Qui-Gon's defiance I sense in you and that we do not need Yoda says you know to Obi-Wan at the end of the film Um, he's he's defiant but that's I think it's because he has a firm belief in what the force has been showing him and nobody else wants to listen because it might be a little bit different than the dogma of the Jedi and and I think that's a again he's John the Baptist in this film and nobody wants to listen. You know, he's talking about the coming of the Chosen One, and, and everybody's like, what? And and the Jedi, in the end, turn out to be the Pharisees. So, I mean, it's a really biblical amount of um, stuff happening <laughs> in this prequel trilogy. Uh, and, you know, the only one who kind of listens in the end and gets it enough becomes Yoda and, and Obi-Wan. And, of course, as we know, they're really the only two who end up being important for the the prequel trilogies, I mean they're the only ones who end up being important then for the, for the OT Yeah,
3: I, I agree with what you're saying and I mean, you, you know, you're bringing up the sort of like biblical aspects and I, I think that that actually applies too to, you know even, you know, if you look at sort of like the political situation surrounding you know, um, religion today, you know, and, and and that's that's really sort of valid, like it, it reminds me actually of like my dad who who used to be a Catholic priest and you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously I wasn't around when he was a priest, but I've heard stories. That would have been difficult, Mike. <laughs> it would have been difficult, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I've heard stories, and, you know, like, as someone who was, like, raised Catholic and everything, obviously the Catholic Church has a very strict set of rules, and there would be lots of times where, like, I'd see my friends doing certain things, and I'd ask my parents, like, well, how come you don't do that? You know, why why don't we do that? Aren't we supposed to do that? And both of them, my mom still works in a church, and my dad obviously was a priest. They're both like, "No, no, no, that's that's stupid. That they're missing the point, you know." And I, I, it really does seem like like Qui Gon is someone who, like you're saying, sees what the Force is supposed to be, and not necessarily, you know, looks at the reasons behind they're doing the thing, the things that they do, as opposed to uh, just doing the things. That they do because they're what that's what they're supposed to do, and the the one weird thing about that to me, which seems in conflict with with that that idea, which I think is a really cool idea, is Yoda, who is like supreme Jedi dude and is presented that way throughout, and yet he is you know one of the people on the council on the council and everything like that, and he's not you know like you're saying he's he's saying to. To Obi-Wan like we don't need any more you know rebellious ideas in here you know it's not and I don't know do we ever really see him come around yeah
1: we do because uh, it is um I think that the specifically the line later the chosen one the boy may be nevertheless great danger I I uh, yeah. I foresee in his in his training yeah. like he specifically says Qui-Gon is probably right but, but I, this is not. Just this gonna, is going to be painful, it's mess man. Everything up. Yeah, yeah. Dude, like I don't want to commit to this. Yeah. Like let somebody it's else Yoda's do it. Way not of me. saying? I've got a
0: bad feeling yeah. about this. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I, I loved that, and I, and I think the the best thing about the prequels is gotta be you and McGregor playing Obi Wan Kenobi because I mean, to me, he inhabits. He is Obi Wan, you know, and 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 even when I get to the original trilogy, there's no disconnect for me. Of I, I know it's played by different guys and everything, but just the way he's able to embody that character, I love it. He he became my f- my favorite character of all time in Star Wars because of the way that Ewan plays him at, in in the films. It's 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 damn near perfect. I mean, there's, there's nothing he does. I just think he doesn't get enough to do in episode one. That's, that's my only complaint.
3: He, he's good, but you got to give credit where credit's due, and Joel Edgerton, as, as Uncle Owen, has him beat.
1: Uh, well, that, you know, that's episode two. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying, you're saying, right. you're, you're say, you're about saying that all of the prequels.
3: And I'm just saying, Joel Edgerton has him beat. It, in those like It's a tour de force. five, five lines of dialogue that he has,
1: <laughs> yeah. less than it's, that. A, it's an absolute tour de, tour de force, nails absolutely. But he nails it. Yeah. There's a
3: video somewhere uh-uh. of him on the set being interviewed by Ahmed Best, because apparently Edgerton's, like, a huge Star Wars fan, and he's saying yeah. all of Uncle Owen's dialogue from uh, A New Hope. It's awesome. Huh. Try to find it. It's that's the best. I would, like,
1: I would like. I would like to see funny. that. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think um, you know, I have to say too, uh, the one thing that did, didn't work for me about an old character was the puppet that they used for Yoda mm-hmm. when the movie had first come out. It it just didn't work, and obviously it didn't work for just about anybody um, because they, as, as soon as they could, they replaced him with the digital Yoda, which is way better than the puppet that they created. Um, I think they would have been better served by just freshening up the puppet from episodes, uh, you know, five. and it, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, well, I, the
1: the thing is, they they said at one point that it was beca- that they used the same molds, but the the materials that they used were so far advanced. Like they they had a whole bunch of reasons why. But the 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 thing is that the the blue I call them the Blu Ray Yoda is even better than what they did for episode 3 and it's it's one oh, of those things where it, it's sort of it's sort of like i i want them to go back and redo redo those effects for episode 3 because I'm like the Yoda in episode 1 is unbelievable that digital creature is it, it's just amazing if i'm not mistaken though i
3: think that the episode 1 digital Yoda was done prior to episode 3 from from what i recall they said something like okay i wanna, i want to um, get you get you into the get you guys into the uh, you know the yoda mode so we're going to you know have a little preseason training here by by doing redoing episode
1: 1 yoda that would blow my mind uh, they must have redone it because the thing is looking at episode 3 yoda and and the episode 1 yoda maybe it was because they had everybody working on a very short bit of film But, like, everything from, like, the the translucency of the ears on the the tips, and here I am, you know, uh, just to prove the point that, yeah, the puppet was the hardest thing to defend um, (laughs) uh, about that, uh, about episode one. Yeah, what was the thought behind the puppet?
2: Was it supposed to look younger or something? I mean, it it didn't look even, it didn't look right. Like, they were trying to go for something different. Like, it was a different time frame, so he he, uh, maybe has not enough year here as he did in episode five i don't know
3: yeah like 30 years is gonna make a big difference to a 900 year old being you know it's a very
1: stressful 30 years
0: yeah yeah i think that's exactly what happened is that they they ended up creating a puppet that looked too young and it just didn't it didn't feel right you know It, it just didn't feel right we all know what yoda feels like from episode five and it just didn't work, which was so funny because I remember when, when we got to episode two and Yoda shows up and, I mean, he just gives that little look to Palpatine in his office. I was like, I was sold on digital Yoda. It was it was so much better than what we had seen in episode one. So, I, you know, I, I think here what we're seeing now with what we have with the digital copies and the Blu-rays now uh, for episode one, it it works really well and i think yeah yoda has one of the most interesting arcs throughout the prequels and it's a very interesting start to have him here kind of be the one who is defending the the dogma of the jedi uh. you know defending the the um the the status quo at the moment you know and you'll watch that progression happen throughout the rest of the prequels of him slowly that slowly dissolve as he realizes, I think in a lot of ways that he was, I mean, and he even says it in episode three failed. I have into exile I let go, you know? Uh, so he, he realizes that he's been wrong a lot.
1: Yeah. But the, the novelization the I, I'm not nuts about the novelization, but one of the neat things was that got called out in it that I don't think is very clear in the movie is um, how abnormal it was for the council to go against Yoda because he says, you know, agree with you, the council does, uh, but I do not. And it, like there's, sp- it, it, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but there's specific text in the novelization where you're like inside Obi-Wan's head and he's like, this is really weird that they've gone against Yoda for this. Like, and I, you know, so you could, to speak to your point, Maybe that's the moment where Yoda starts piecing together that things are wrong. Like that—that's where it starts like to unravel for him. It's
0: part of my head canon. Yeah, I, I know. I think that, and you picked up on something that I just hadn't. Agree with you, the council does that. I do not, and that they had made the decision um, over his head. You know, we're voting, and and you're just one vote. So right. Uh, we're gonna do this, and and we all pay for the consequences later. So yeah, I love that. Oh, if it's in for me, what if is, it's
3: in the novelization, it's not just head canon; it's actual canon.
0: That's true. As well, long as it that's... doesn't fly in the face of anything that's on screen, <laughs> yeah. it is considered canon. So though, there's still some things that. Well, we'll talk about it another time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. what I love about this huh. film, and I think is really cool, is to kind of watch the the film of of symbiosis and. Um, you know, Obi-Wan has that great line when they're talking to Boss Nass and saying, you know, you and the Naboo form a symbiont circle and what happens to one is going to affect the other and how Palpatine is able to use to his advantage this, this whole thing because, you know, he's able to imbalance the the entire galaxy because of the greed of the trade federation who doesn't care what they if their actions have a repercussion for the rest of the galaxy because it's going to make them more money and like he's able to take advantage of that and and i love that theme because it plays out perfectly throughout the rest of that palpatine has kind of pushed one domino and it just affects the entire rest of the galaxy you know and that nobody in the galaxy cares enough to see what those kind of actions might lead to. There's so much in the state of mind of everybody taking care of themselves at this point, even the Jedi, uh, the Republic, everything, just looking out for their own interest, in and the Clone Wars does such a masterful job of showing how this all works as well. I just love that theme, and, and it, I, I think... George starts it here in this film, and it plays perfectly into the rest of the you know the prequel trilogy.
1: Well, Qui Gon uses a similar level. Uh, Qui Gon uses a similar lever to uh, to basically get Anakin freed. Uh, he specifically addresses that he's yeah. going to use Watto's greed against him. So you know that that's sort of like a duality point. Because uh, you know the the whole movie is all about you know the balance and duality of everything, and that's that's one of the ways in which I've defended Jar Jar um, as well. Is like he's sort of the antithesis of Darth Maul. You know, like everybody has a pairing uh, throughout the the, the film. Um, I think, with the exception of Anakin, um, and you know, to sort of like set him on a, a, a separate plane and everything like that.
0: Well, and it 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 also I I think. You know, this is something that goes back to Qui-Gon, of that everybody has lost track of the moment, the here and now, being present where you are. Uh, and they're worried uh, about everything else but the present, you know, um, and not being able to see what's happening right in front of their face. And, and it especially happens, you know, to the Jedi who have become tied to a, uh, a republic that they shouldn't be tied to. Because that shouldn't be their upholding value. Is to uphold the Republic. Their their upholding value should be to hold up what the Force wants. And they've tied themselves to the Republic as if the Force and the Republic are one and the same. And the danger that happens when you uh, put yourself under the you know a, 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 the not basically the difference between the spiritual and and the 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 material. And the Jedi have begun to follow not the, the spiritual aspects, and that's where the Mediachlorians, I think, really come in, is that they've they begun to judge people by science and stuff instead of their feelings, what's what's present in the Force right in front of them. Um, they've lost a lot of that because they've taken on society instead of being set apart. I mean, again, it's a very spiritual, almost kind of Christian thing. of the, They've become, you know of the world they become of the galaxy they become instead of being set apart like they're supposed to be um through the will of the force and and it's a really i think an, an interesting thing to watch happen um and again it's it's a really deep uh, theme that George is kind of driving at there and i think it's it's uh it's really cool you know it, it flies right alongside with everything that you see especially with episode 5 and all the teachings that Yoda gives and all the things that he's learned from his mistakes. And uh, that's what I love about this prequel trilogy is that it really feeds into the entire saga.
2: And that's what I didn't like about the Jedi. I expected to go in this movie and really I was excited to meet you know all these different Jedi. But they weren't the Jedi I was expecting. I mean, like you said, they're working with the government and they're opposing Qui-Gon and they're talking science. It's like, I I expected monks like in a, in a church or something, or they're out in the wilderness or, but they're in this temple. And I mean, it was even awkward to see Yoda sitting in this room. You know, I was so used to see him in the swamps. It was just a different perspective of Jedi that I wasn't expecting. And, Uh, Yeah, for that reason, I think we were supposed to come out of there and not quite like the Jedi in this film, that something's wrong with them.
0: There's no proverbial ivory tower here. They're literally just in an ivory tower, the, the Jedi. And they are sitting on top, again, of Coruscant, which is built on this seedy, decaying underbelly. And the temple sits right on top of all of that. And... I, it's so blatant and in your face, but I think a lot of people just kind of miss it. You know, the, the visual cues that George is giving you that even the Jedi, everything's not right here. You know, they're supposed to be off, you know, defending the weak and, uh, you know, keeping order in the galaxy. And yet they're not even, wor- I mean, slavery is still a problem in the Outer Rim, but they don't care about it because the the Republic doesn't care about it. The Jedi have completely lost their way, and I think that's what makes this so interesting: is that Palpatine strikes while the while the iron is hot, while everything is is corroding, even the Jedi, and it's it's a sad thing to see, but it's part of the fall of the Republic when good people sit around and do nothing, and the Jedi are the embodiment of that in their luxurious, you know, Mace Windu couch. Your chair, you know, I'm, I'm sure the thing pops up ESPN for him.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, look at it, look at the way uh, Window is sitting in the chair. He's like leaning back, like he's watching a football game or something. He's just casual, yeah. like, hey, whatever.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, to to speak to the you know glittering metropolis on top of decay, I, I will say that that point might have been difficult for audiences to plug into at the time. Uh, in 1999 because we didn't see the decay until we go into the lower levels of Coruscant in episode two. So there really is a lot of setup about, you know, people being set apart and above, but we never see that. I mean, Tatooine has the counterpoint, but we don't strictly see the, you know, I I think it, it could have played better for the audience had you seen... Coruscant's lower levels in episode one and not waited till episode two um like I I think that would have that point would have translated better uh you know to the to the audience at large that you know maybe necessarily wasn't looking to wait until the sequel to see you know Coruscant's darker underbelly
0: well and that's really what came out for me and you know in this kind of beginning of the the fall of the republic and and seeing all this being set up you know the the fact that padme says at dinner i i can't believe that slavery still exists in the galaxy like she's surprised the same way i think people today are surprised slavery still exists in the world this still happens you know we we haven't eradicated that yet but it's because everybody's just so busy worrying about their own petty little lives and their glittering ivory towers on Coruscant that nobody cares about what's happening to people on the Outer Rim, which, I mean, again, what a great theme of the fact that things are happening all over our world that we just, we we don't care to see because it's not right in front of our face. And it doesn't affect me and my bottom line here and now, and even the Jedi there, you know, Anakin says, you know, I had a dream that I, I would free the slaves. Um, and I think he, he sees that the, the ideal of what the Jedi are supposed to be. And, uh, you know, even Qui-Gon says, I didn't actually come here to free slaves, but it's because the council hasn't sent him on that mission. The, 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 uh, The Senate hasn't sent them on that mission. The Chancellor hasn't sent them on that mission. And apparently the Jedi work at the whim of the the Senate and the Council these days and not the will of the Force, which is what Qui-Gon is so in tune with and trying to get Obi-Wan to be in tune with at the very beginning of the film. And I I love this whole idea of the fall of the Republic because I think it's the thing that really speaks to where we are even more so now uh and uh in our society and you know great storytellers have a way of bringing back important stories to to remind us of what can happen and i think george i don't know if he was just interested in telling this story or if maybe he saw something in society but I don't know, but the this is a genius story to be telling at this point and to be watching at this point in history.
3: Well, I remember when uh, episode three came out and everyone was sort of drawing the parallels between, you know, mm. the events in episode three and nine eleven. And someone, you know, asked him about it and was like, "Hey, did this have a really big influence on you?" And he was like, "Well, no, this is the same thing that was going on in the the sixties and seventies and everything. And that's really." what the influence was. It's just crazy that it's happening again now, but that's kind of the whole point, is that this is a timeless story. We always make the same mistakes again and again and again. And uh, the fact that you can see um, something in, you know, what is happening today is just proving my point, you know? And I thought that that was a really interesting take on things. But you can see that throughout all of his work. You can see the same themes, you know, popping up in everything from... THX 1138 to you know Red Tails to everything and uh, it's kind of interesting to you know look at the prequels as as part of his overall filmography and and see um, the same themes showing up again and again and again
0: for you guys uh, we need to talk about we uh, music and production value and and those kind of things those are huge parts of, of the Star Wars saga uh, and so I wanted to ask you guys uh, about that what you thought of what John Williams did here with the score for episode one and then just uh, the world building and, and and you know star wars became iconic for spaceships and 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 weapons and and new locations and everything and this movie has a plethora of all of that, and so um yeah, for you guys, uh, how did that strike you and and even now, as you watch and you 've been thinking about the film for so many years, uh, how has it grown for you to,
3: to me, the world building is the big thing here, you know I mean, aside from the nostalgia you know if it when I defend this movie as being you know like a good movie and, and something worth watching. You know, the thing that I always tell people when they point out the flaws is, you know, yeah, that's all true. I can't argue that. However, look at what he was doing outside of that. Look at what he was doing outside of the story. He built a universe in a way that he didn't. In you know the the original trilogy in the original trilogy, you see a tiny little corner of that universe, and here he's just like boom let's 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 take a let's zoom out on the on the google map and and take a look at this galaxy you know for all that's in it and I think that he does a great job of um coming up with so many different um, elements and, and and putting it together into something that that actually works um, and for those reasons, I think you need to applaud him uh, even if even if the story that he's he's telling inside that universe may have some flaws
1: i I think that uh, one of the strongest bits uh, you know to speak to your point Mike uh, you know about the the world building is that the tale of the ships. Uh, tells you what's coming and, you know, who's got the upper hand in a lot of ways because you've got the Naboo are all shiny and beautiful and artistic and you've got the Republic sending their Jedi out on this ship that is, you know, the, you, know you first see it, it's all, it looks more original trilogy than anything else because it's all, you know, like the, the paint is chipped and, you know, it's scratched up and you can tell that the Republic is not the major f- player uh, you know, financially speaking, immediately because you know, and then they arrive on the Federation ship, which is all just beautifully appointed and shiny and and, and you know, mechanical and cold and you know, I, I think that the 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 visual communication with the ships, with the the pod racers, with everything like that is is really something special. And you know, since you wanted to talk about overall, I think that Williams's score is absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. Uh, in this film I'm sorry, just
3: one little thing about the ships. I will say that the fact that they you know are in a transitional period and what the good guys here are maybe ruled by bad guys in the later ones, I will never not be confused by the ship design when it goes from original trilogy to prequel trilogy or vice versa i 'm like, wait a minute, which are the good i can't i, I, I can't even i 'm not even going to try not even going to try to figure it out.
2: Well, the only thing I would add to this is Duel of the Fates. That score is one of the best scores in any Star Wars movie. And then that scene with Maul and Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon is one of the best lightsaber duels. Put those two together. I'm good. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I I, I'm with you guys. Uh, You know, one of the things that I do love about this movie is, is how expansive it is and and. George is doing the exact same thing that he was doing in episode four, which is that he is doing something nobody else has tried before. Um, and he is doing it with different tools this time, but he's doing the same thing he was doing then, because he's he's creating new tools to play with. He He's using this as an opportunity to expand what you can do on screen, and I, I love that, that the world building is just beyond what we even thought could be possible in Star Wars, and George expanded what it meant to be Star Wars with the look and the feel. And I love that idea of the, you know, the beautiful Naboo setting, and you know, you have these artisans and these craftsmen, and on, on both sides, the Gungans and the the Naboo, they they both live within their environment and try to create beauty within that environment and incorporate that environment and they respect their environment you can tell and, and they're, they're artisans, they're craftsmen and, and how antithetical that is to the rest of the galaxy at this point which is kind of just being eaten up by what you were talking about John, this kind of cold calculating money driven society that's become very mechanical as well with the droids that they use uh, as as an army and you know everything like that I think it just it creates it it feels real I, I honestly I was watching the movie the other day I'm watching on my iMac my 27 inch year which has a better resolution than my tv screen and I'm watching the digital copy the brand new digital copies we got just a few months ago and I was surprised how well everything looked together uh, the model work that they do here, uh, you know, especially with the pod race, the model work there is an incredible. But that with the digital work, it looked good. It it, it still looks good. I'm I'm very impressed by how that all plays together or um, the way the model work of feed works with the CGI that they do. Uh, the, it's it's just incredible. Right. And um, it's
2: not as much CGI as people think it is. There is a lot. Yeah, yeah
0: there. In there. Uh, yeah, there really is a lot of model work in there, and and they're putting it all together, and I, I think that this movie still, I think that this movie still feels really great, and it is brought to life by John Williams, and having them there and creating these new themes, um, like the Duel of Fates and uh, everything that goes into this film. You're immediately swept back into the Star Wars universe, you know, and I, I think that's one of the things that that helps is to have John there to to make you feel okay i I know where I am because the the auditory message that I'm getting is Star Wars, yeah. and everything else on screen starts to feel more star warsy um it, we'll talk about Rebels later, John and I. will yeah. we'll talk about that, we'll talk about and that how they deal with the, the music. But this, because it's specifically for these scenes and everything, yeah, John outdid himself. I, I think, Um, I don't know if I'd call it the best of the prequel trilogy. I don't know. Uh, we best definitely score- have the best no. soundtrack version because yeah. it's the only no, one that got the ultimate soundtrack for uh, edition, which is really sad because 2 and 3 have some great music as well that deserve to be expanded into a full, you know, complete recordings. But, that's again, that's another time, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll say, though, uh, you know, talking about the score and, and, and Duel of Fates in specific triggered a memory uh, for me. Aaron, uh, the girl I was dating at the time, you know, that, that saw the movie with me, I will always remember that the moment when they're in the hangar and the door opens and Darth Maul is there, you know, dun-dun, dun-dun-dun, right? I'll never forget her uh, squeezing my hand at that moment. Like, I could feel like her whole, she was like, What is about to happen? Like, that was. So I hear that music or I see that scene, and I always remember how it played for somebody who was not as diehard a Star Wars fan as I was and am. And sort of like how much I enjoyed that moment of, Oh, okay, this is cool. She's, you know, somebody else is plugged into it too. So, I think that just speaks to sort of like how that music cue really, especially in that moment, just like sort of like punched the audience in the face and was like, pay attention. And it was fun.
0: Yeah. And then he lights up a dual sided lightsaber and we all went nuts. I mean, geez. <laughs>
1: um,
0: well, there are, I mean, this is, this, there's no way we could cover everything that is in episode one. I feel like you could do a whole series of podcasts. For an entire year, where you did nothing but talk about parts of the prequel trilogy, one a week, you you'd still have enough material, I'm sure, for maybe a couple of years. It, there's just so much you can talk about with with Star Wars in general. We're not going to cram it all in, um, but it's it's been a blast getting to do that with you guys. And and
1: I just want to give you an opportunity.
0: Final thoughts of, of just anything that you're like, oh, we didn't talk about this. I want to talk about this. Now's your time.
1: I, I think everybody's afraid to go. Or is everybody just being too polite to each other? Perhaps.
3: Perhaps. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll go. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, like I've said a million times in the past, I cannot see the forest through the trees with this movie. I, I will love it till the day I die, and that has everything to do with um, the events surrounding the release of this movie. You know, the the sort of general fan camaraderie, um the anticipation you know i mean i i i think i was more excited about going to see the trailer in front of meet joe black than i was about going to see the actual movie uh when it came out and um all that stuff to me is just like uh i mean in a sense it's it's like uh, what movies are about you know is is that that sort of um thing and uh the fact that you know, the movie um, has not lived up to my initial uh, um, uh, praise over the years. I mean, like, you know, at at the time I was like, is this on my top 10? Is this movie better than Die Hard? Yeah, I think this movie's better than Die Hard. And it's like now it's like, you know, I look at like my, my top 10 from 99, which is like one of the best years ever in movie history. And this thing is like... It's down the list. It's down the list, and even when it's on the list, I'm like, well, I kind of have to justify it through the personal connection, what, what, what whatnot. But that ultimately doesn't matter because what this movie gave me goes beyond what's on the screen. And for those reasons, I will always cherish it. Um, Yeah, till the day I die, I guess.
1: Which is hopefully a very long time from now. I'm hoping. We we shall see.
2: Well, I would just say that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I got married at this time. It brings back really good memories of the buildup, as Mike was saying, in going into this film. Uh, you know, I went back. I don't know how many times I saw it. It wasn't a tremendous a lot of times going to the theater. But I, it was just it was just a good time to know that Star Wars was back. And it was a it was a different take. It was bringing something new to the universe. It was expanding that universe, and uh, it brought us into two other films. It brought us into new novels. It brought us into the Clone Wars. It, it just it was the it was the spark that started a whole new generation of Star Wars. And I always appreciate this film for that.
1: Uh, my f- my final thought will go with uh, there. There were other things going on in my life at the time, and, and so there are uh, certain moments in each uh, prequel film that I associate with things I was going through uh, at the time. And uh, I will say that the, one of the most beautiful uh, moments in the film, possibly in all of Star Wars, probably in all of Star Wars, you know, if I'm going to say one of, is the moment where he says goodbye to his mother and walks off to uh, join Qui-Gon and and walks off. And the way the music swells and the way that scene plays, um, that will always have a very, very special place uh, in my heart. And I think that for any other flaw that uh, the the movie may have, uh, moments like that are what make it special.
0: You know, what I loved about this movie for me is that it challenged my preconception of what Star Wars is and George allowed me to see that Star Wars is so much bigger than we originally thought and he continued to do that for episodes 2 3 the clone wars um that that Star Wars is is expansive and and there's so much that can be added to it and and enjoyed from it and you know the thing i just think of the things that came from this movie that went on and how much I love it. The fact that Darth Maul became so cool, even to George, he was like, um, well, we're, we're going to bring him back. And Dave Fulony's he's like, well, you, you remember he you cut him in half. I, I know, but we're, we're going to bring him back. You know, I just, that's, that's the power of what George did with, with episode one. He created some things that are so iconic, they couldn't stay dead. Um, and I, I love that. And I, I do, I love this film. It's not perfect. There's things that I don't love about it. Um, in, in the sense that, you know, I, I, I wish that they had gotten a a different actor to play, uh, Anakin. Um, I I just think it wasn't the best choice, but all in all, none of those things that I might be like, eh. Don't they don't ruin the experience for me. And and actually the more I've watched the film over the years, the more I've become the more I've watched the film over the years, the more I appreciate what George is doing and, and I, I think having more of an appreciation of what he's saying because all my expectations are out the window now and I can just enjoy the product for what it is. And um, you know, for me if I learned anything from all the prequels was don't go into movies expecting something um, that you want to see. Judge it on its own merit first, and, and, and then you can talk about anything else. And uh, it's really helped me to love movies more. So for all that episode one has given me, uh, like you guys, it's going to have a special place in my heart that maybe doesn't represent completely the, the actual quality of the entire film. But I, I don't really care so, you know, it, it means something to, else to me, and I think in, in in the end, that's one of the things that we've all loved about Star Wars, is that there's something about it that means something to us, that goes way beyond any of the story elements, any of the characters, there's just something kind of ethereal, whatever. There's some kind of gravitas toward with it that keeps drawing us back into the galaxy far, far away, and yeah, I, I'm really excited that we're going to be on this retrospective now and and um, looking at all of the Star Wars films as we move towards new freaking Star Wars guys. It's it's like 1999 again. It's awesome, and I I, I can't wait. So, um, it, it's been a I uh, it. Fun is not the word that I would say. It's been awesome talking about episode one with you guys. Um, But it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
2: Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit.
3: And I'm wondering if it's because the comic book writers didn't understand what the filmmakers were doing or whether it was because the comic book writers wrote themselves into a corner or whether it was because the comic book writers wanted to open their stories up to more possibilities.
0: Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice.
1: You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. This year, opening
0: for
2: five-year mission is Dal Rock. Dal Rock. Dal Rock. They'll rock your world, Bajoran style. The ready room.
0: I do like that he just drops out of the sky naked. That is the perfect <laughs> way to introduce Q. And then just before we cut to the credits, they get this great shot of him looking up at Picard, and he's like, hey, what up?
2: To the journey!
0: My question is, what would Janeway have in place of banana pancakes? Because that's B'Elanna's thing. Would Janeway's be
1: coffee ice cream?
2: I was just about to say coffee ice cream. <laughs> was, my
1: My lips. My lips were forming the syllables to say coffee <laughs> ice cream. Warp 5.
0: I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. And I remember revisiting it now in full. And I had forgotten the fact that
1: the future guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go. With Silic and the Sulaban,
2: which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars.
3: I know that both of us will come out of it okay. But <laughs> since Matthew is not used to sparring with either of us. I'm afraid that he's going to be a bloody mess lying on the floor of the 602 Club.
0: The 602 Club. You know, that's Bryce Dallas Howard's decision. She wanted to do that. She made the decision that the the character wouldn't get out of these heels, which to me said, this character has changed some. Like, she has learned some things, but there are some things about her that are not going to change.
1: Literary Trex you
0: know, Bajor getting through the occupation with its faith and this faith kind of coming back in Cardassia and helping them kind of get through, you know, their darkest hour. Yeah, I definitely do like kind of how it's come full circle.
2: Axinar, the official podcast.
1: Well, I tried different action figures. Uh, I tried Black Widow. I tried the Black Widow from uh, uh, the, the Hot Toys Black Widow. Too small. It wouldn't work with really? the other action. Yeah, it didn't didn't photograph quite. But, but tell everyone why you're photographing action for you. Women at Warp.
0: So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones.
1: Yes, definitely. Of course, bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur.
2: And that's what else is happening on Trek.FM.
0: Guys, check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking all over the Star Trek universe and, of course, beyond. You know where, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are an Apple user, guys, um, you really can help us out. We want this network to continue to grow. Hit that subscribe button and give us star ratings and reviews. I mean, John knows how important this is, having his own podcast. The star ratings and reviews make us more visible for people when they're searching for shows and it's it we really appreciate it because it also lets us know how we're doing and how you're feeling so be honest and we know if you're honest you're going to be giving us five stars
1: right john everybody should give the 602 club five stars absolutely and in fact i invite them to uh listen as well uh to another five star podcast uh called commentary trek stars oh uh, yeah that i appear on uh with, with mike on the trek fm network Mike, would you yeah. like to tell everybody what commentary Trek Stars is about?
3: Well, I'd give it three and a half stars myself, but uh No,
1: it's five <laughs> stars, Mike. Okay, whatever it's five stars.
3: I guess I guess this is similar to our debate with Phantom Menace, but whatever. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, a show where we look at the work that Star Trek creators do outside of Star Trek. Uh so be sure to check that out right here on Trek FM.
0: Which is great because on iTunes, we're a feature provider. You can find all the shows that we're on. And so, just help us out. Guys, if you're looking for the shows, you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered. Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can grab the MP3 file from the website uh, and stream that if you need to. You can grab the RSS link. We have you covered in every which way possible. Another way that you can help keep all the shows coming to each week, of course, uh, is to become a patron of our network on Patreon. And I just want to say so much thanks to all the guys on Patreon, the ladies on Patreon, who make this possible every single week. We're a listener-supported network. We depend on you guys to help this content keep coming to you. And it means the world to me that you care enough to make that happen. You can find all the details at patreon.com. we got some great perks for you if you become a member. We're working on some great perks for you. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm. A special thanks to Ken Tripp, who's my associate producer here on the show. I really appreciate his support. He does that through Patreon. He's he's supporting us on a, a certain level and allows him to be my associate producer, so I really appreciate that. And, of course, a quick shout-out to my executive producers, uh, Norrin C. Lau and Christopher Brian jones which, uh, th- without those guys, this show wouldn't be here. If you'd like to contact us, tell us about your Episode 1 experience, Go to Trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail, look in the sidebar of the show page, go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Trek FM. And of course the Babel Conference. Guys, we're gonna talk, be talking about Star Wars because we've got a big Star Wars week here. Uh, we've got episode one happening. John and I are going to be talking on a supplemental episode about the new season of Star Wars Rebels. And as we move forward, we're only going to have more Star Wars talk for you as we cover the rest of the films, some of the books coming out, some of the comics coming out. We've got you covered. By the end of the year, this is going to be (laughs) (laughs)
3: wars.fm. Probably, yeah. Uh, I'm talking to Chris about it right now. I'm just
0: kidding. Uh, Well, guys... Thanks so much for, for being in the show. Bruce, tell everybody where they can find you online and, and especially about uh, your latest article there uh, that you just wrote uh, about Star Wars. Yes,
2: I just uh, wrote an article called uh, Greedo Shooting First Makes Sense. And, uh, you know, it's a bit controversial, I guess, because everybody, you know, complains about the uh, edited scene with Han and Greedo in the cantina. But, uh you can find that on starwarsreport.com and uh, my Twitter handle is admiral underscore Rex.
0: John, uh, let everybody know uh, about where they can find you online, uh, where they can find your podcasts, and about the podcasts you do with your friend Craig that I like to argue with online on Twitter.
1: Uh, yes, well, uh, I'm on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, um, and uh Uh, As we mentioned before, uh, I have the uh, privilege of appearing on Commentary Trek Stars uh, with with Mike uh, here on the network. And uh, my friend Craig and I have a show called Words with Nerds uh, that is a a weekly show that airs on Thursdays, Uh, iTunes, blah, 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 all the usual stuff. Um, Stop on by. uh, Think you might like it.
0: And Mike, where can we find you?
3: Well, right here on Track FM, doing that show that everyone keeps on talking about, and also <laughs>
0: <laughs> that five star <laughs> show, guys. That five star show. It is, and
3: then also uh, uh. Standard Orbit um, with Drew, where we talk about the original series here on Track FM, and also uh, you can find me on commentarytrackstars.com, where I do commentary track stars off topic and commentary track star babies, and uh, yeah, uh, you can
0: find me on Twitter at mumbles three k. Well, I always like the babies. They're so yeah. cute. <laughs> well, you guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing a couple other podcasts. I do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about uh, Deep Space Nine exclusively, and I have a great time doing that. I'm on Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And in fact, we realized the other day we're the only show on the network talking about new Star Trek because we talk about the new Star Trek books, the new comics. Happening, uh, and we also get to interview the authors about that, so it's so much fun. And if you want a new Star Trek, the literary universe is one of the best places to get it these days. And you can find me on my own personal blog at 42LifeInBetween.WordPress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back here.